invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 4. Very familiar passage, I'm sure, to many of you. Parable of the Soils. We'll be looking at Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. Up until this part in Mark's Gospel, it's been quite exciting to follow Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus called the Christ, a title and a claim which John the Baptist had testified concerning Jesus, this Jesus is the Christ, a title and claim that the Scriptures testified of Jesus, everything that the Messiah would be doing this Jesus is doing, and a title and a claim that his own miracles even backed up. If not the Christ do these things, then what more could the Christ be doing? And so the people throughout the whole region, Mark told us in chapter 1, from all over flocked to this man doing everything that they were told the Christ would be doing. And so messianic expectation is very, very high. In fact, Jesus has become the talk of the town, I would say, probably the talk of every town. And you could just imagine the, the, the discussions in the marketplace, in the common places, in uh, places of commerce and, 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 and social discussion, everyone's asking, well, what do you say about Jesus? Do, do, do you think that he's the Christ? I mean, he's from Nazareth. Could it really be an, an, this guy? And you've heard what the scribes say about him. Could the scribes be wrong? What, what do you say about Jesus? Well, Folks, this is a turning point in Jesus' public ministry. It's a sad turning point because the Jews are beginning to reject their Messiah. And what John wrote in John 1.11 is being fulfilled. He came to his own and those who were of his own did not receive him. We've already seen in chapter 3 that the established religious authorities had begun to put pressure on people. Do not believe in him. Do not confess that he is the Christ. He is satanic. And we read in the other Gospels that they put pressure on people and they threatened to put people out of the synagogues to excommunicate them if they publicly affirmed faith in Christ. We saw that, uh, if you remember, the, uh, the, the man born blind, his own parents wouldn't even support him for fear of being put out of the synagogue. So the religious authorities are putting pressure on the people, and, and even more so, Jesus himself is beginning to withdraw from engaging with the crowds. And one way he does that is he stops teaching and preaching openly. He stops teaching clearly and plainly. And if you look down to Mark 4.34, it should say that he did not speak to them without a parable. So whenever he, from this point on, is speaking publicly, it is in parable. It is in riddles. And he's only explaining them privately to his own disciples. So, between the pressure from the rulers not to believe in Jesus and from the fact that Jesus' own teaching is now becoming less clear, more obscure, more difficult to understand. You can see why many followers are now beginning to leave him. The, The hype is beginning to wane. And to help those of his disciples who are remaining with him, to encourage them, and to understand the cause of the rejection of their countrymen, Jesus gives them an explanation of this parable. And you'll see in 
the verse the first eight verses that he he gives the parable itself he gives it to the crowd and to his disciples and that will be our first point and then we'll see in verses 9 through 12 Jesus will only to his disciples give the reason for the parables why he is speaking in parables and then we'll see in verses 13 to 20 the meaning or the explanation of the parables again given only to those who are on the inside to his disciples let's read the text mark 4 1 through 20 he began to teach again by the sea and such a very large crowd gathered to him that he got into a boat in the sea and sat down And the whole crowd was by the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables and was saying to them in his teaching, Listen to this. Behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. And after the sun had risen, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. Other seeds fell into the good soil, and as they grew up and increased, they yielded a crop and produced 30, 60, and 100-fold. And he was saying, He who has ears to hear... Let him hear. And as soon as he was alone, his followers, along with the twelve, began asking him about the parables. And he was saying to them, To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. But those who are outside get everything in parables, so that while seeing they may see and not perceive, and while hearing they may hear and not understand, otherwise they might return and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. These are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. And when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. In a similar way, these are the ones on whom the seed was sown on rocky places, who when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no firm root in themselves but are only temporary then when affliction or persecution arises because of the word immediately they fall away and others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns these are the ones who have heard the word but the worries of the world and the deceitfulness the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word And it becomes unfruitful. And those are the ones on whom seed was sown on the good soil. And they hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. We first consider the giving of the parable itself, verses 1 through 8. And this is the scene. Jesus' family had come looking for him to take him away. If forced by necessary, they think he's crazy. They think he's a loon, that he is out of control, that he needs to be stopped, silenced, and secured for his own good because at this rate he is going to get himself killed, which actually isn't wrong. The, the, The end result is not wrong anyway. But their plan didn't work because Jesus didn't go with them. Rather, being the good teacher, the excellent teacher, he used the opportunity of the arrival of his family to continue to teach. Jesus loved to teach. And then we see in verse 1, he began to teach again by the sea. And there is still a large crowd that is around him and smothering him. And in fact, the, the, the crowd is, is still so large and they're smothering him to such a degree that he, it's almost like he is on the retreat and he's backing up, kind of like uh, uh, 
uh, the, the, the Israelites backing away from the Egyptian army into the Red Sea, and they're being cornered. They're, they're, Jesus is cornered like a, like a trapped animal from the crowd, and he sees a little fishing boat. And he gets into the fishing boat, and he, he launches just far away enough to get a little bit of breathing space but so that he can continue to teach. I, I might have been tempted to just, just keep paddling a little bit, get away from the crowd, but Jesus loves to teach, and he moves away just enough to get some breathing room but continues to preach and teach. And so he, he's now standing aboard the USS pulpit, preaching and teaching, and, and, and right there... Wh- was it was it three feet, four feet, five feet? Just a stone's, a pebble's throw away is the massive crowd still hanging on his every word, still anticipating the next miracle from Jesus. Verse 2, he was teaching them many things in parables. And we looked at this introduction to a parable very, very briefly last time. Parable is a it's a short story. It's, a, it's an analogy. It's an illustration. And what's interesting is the, the, the Gospels attribute 60 parables, 60 of these stories, uh, sometimes being as short as a very pithy comparison or a very pithy statement, sometimes as long drawn out as the prodigal son. And there are 60 of them given to Jesus. No other ancient teacher comes close. Jesus made parables popular. Jesus put parables on the teaching map. And what they are is that they are analogies where spiritual, profound, difficult to understand, heavenly truths, such as something about the kingdom of God, is made easier to understand by taking something that is not heavenly but earthly, something that is not profound, but something practical, something that you and I could relate to. And you take the, the, the easily understood truth and you slap it right next to the heavenly profound truth and, and you can connect the dots. The, 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 the simple helps you interpret the profound. That's what Jesus did through his parables. The plain and simple helped interpret the profound and spiritual. And Mark tells us that he was teaching many things in these parables. So we're only going to get three or four in chapter four. There's much more that Jesus said. Mark is only giving us really a a brief survey. But there is one particular parable, one particular teaching that Mark draws out, and it's this parable of the sower. He tells us, he continues at the end of, Verse 2, he was saying in his teaching, he says, listen, behold, this is is attention grabbing. This is important. Listen up. I'm about to say something important. A sower went out to sow. Now, we'll stop right there in the parable for just a second. He's just said, listen, behold, this this is important. This is crucial to understand. A sower went out to sow. And by that point, he is given probably one of the most familiar scenes to the minds of his hearers. A plain, simple, everyday, physical picture that would have been very, very familiar to those in the crowd. There were probably many in the crowd who were farmers themselves, field workers, and, and, and any who had not left their work and had joined Jesus's teaching would still be out in the field so perhaps while he's saying these words the people could look about and they could see people working in fields people sowing these fields absolutely littered and dominated the Galilean countryside they were everywhere the people capitalized on the earth and on the prospect of growing crops. So fields were absolutely everywhere. And you could, you could look around while Jesus was teaching, and you could see men with, with heavy sacks of seed hoisted over their shoulders, walking methodically up and down and up and down their fields, 
grabbing grain casting. Grabbing grain and casting. They didn't have those little Scots seed spreader things. You, you, you didn't have tractors. You had to cast and throw. Cast and throw. So they could probably see it while Jesus is teaching. And no doubt many in the crowd probably did this for a living. This was Im- immensely rela- uh, relatable to their experiences. And so a sower goes out to sow. Nothing impressive so far. And as he was sowing, verse 4 tells us, some seed fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate it up. This is the first soil. This is the hard, well-trodden, compacted, pressed dirt that's of the road and beside the road. These roads, these paths, kind of took place of the interstate. The, the, uh, Israel didn't uh, have a, um, a transportation department that went around providing and maintaining roads. Rather, these, these paths which would circumvent or, or uh, wrap around people's property and fields, uh, they would connect and provide a network of, of transportation for people. That was how you would traverse the countryside if you weren't on the main highway. And if you, if you remember back in Mark 2.23, we saw the disciples on a road such as this, and they're walking about, and they're, remember what they were plucking and eating? Heads of grain. So that the field where, where, uh, where, where, where seed is being sown, it comes all the way right up to the, to the road, to the path. And inevitably, some seed, as, as the sower is trying to get every square inch, some seed is going to land, is going to overshoot, is going to land on the well-trodden path. And it, that this soil is no doubt hard. You know, this isn't soil that anybody tills. You walk on it. You don't cultivate it. You walk on it. And it's baked by the sun all day. And the, it is hard. It is impenetrable. And a seed that happens to land on this path might as well uh, uh, tr- hope to embed itself into concrete before it has any chance of, of implanting itself into this hard soil. And so the seed is there. Because it's not going anywhere, it's left completely defenseless for the birds that come by after the farmer has moved on to his field. And the birds come and they eat it and then fly away. Now that's the first <coughs> soil. Verse 5, Jesus t- gives us the next one. Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. And after the sun had risen, it was scorched. And because it had no root, it withered away. This is the second soil. This is the rocky ground, the stony ground. Now, lean in a little bit. I want to tell you a little bit of a little secret. Israel has a lot of rocks. Yeah, astounding, right? Jen and I went to Israel two years ago, and we saw a stone or two where we went. Just about every picture I took, I was telling people, say, oh, look, here's, here's a bunch of rocks and this feature. In this picture, oh, here's a bunch of rocks and that place. They were absolutely everywhere. Lots of rocks, lots of stones in the orchards, vineyards, fields, out in the plains, on the hillside, in the, in the terraced fields. And there would be uh, uh, throughout places, uh, sometimes small, sometimes medium-sized rocks. Sometimes there would be entire sheets of limestone. And ideally, you know, at the beginning, or perhaps like when he acquires the field, or at the beginning of the harvest, he would go through and he would try to remove systematically as many of these rocks as possible <coughs> to ensure that he's going to get the most gain out of his sowing. But inevitably, because there's a lot of rocks, he's going to miss a couple. And so how would he find that he has missed some? Well, he, find, he, he finds out, he can identify places where there's probably a rock because uh, after he sows, uh, 
plants over the rocks will shoot up prematurely. They shoot up quick. And you know what else they do quickly? When the sun comes out, they die. They grow quickly. They die quickly. So when that happens, the farmer could say there's probably rocks underneath that shallow surface. And that's because uh, the presence of rocks gives two problems to the plants. One is that uh, they trap moisture so that when the, uh, the roots or uh, when the seed is sending the roots down, they find moisture and they don't need they don't go any further because they found what they're looking for. The other is that uh, if the rock is big enough, if it's limestone, if the, if the root is directly over the rock, the rock provides a physical barrier to the roots going any further. So when that happens, the, the roots go, well, this is it. This is where we're, I guess this is where we're going to grow, so let's start going up. And, and so the plant prematurely shoots up while the, the seed that's sown in good soil that seed is still sending its roots down. It's still going deep. And so the farmer would, you know, you would be tempted to rejoice because now you see green. Now you see growth. But shouldn't rejoice yet because when the sun comes up, what little moisture, what little moisture that plant has in those roots in that shallow soil is going to be quickly, quickly expended. And what happens after that? plant dies it's like it's like the guy who who wants to go hiking the john muir trail or uh or hiking yosemite and instead of taking a you know a real industrious 60 ounce night uh uh Nalgene bottle he takes a capri sun it's not going to last very longer that's the second soil the stony soil the third soil is the thorny soil and this like the second this one is also deceptive because you look at it and you see things growing. You see green. And you think, yay, green <coughs> is good. But the problem here is not a lack of growth. It is actually an overabundance of growth because what's growing alongside the plant that you want to grow? Weeds. Plants that you don't want to grow. Weeds. They, these are these plants I have this... Uh, crazy propensity to just sap and steal and voraciously absorb and consume the moisture and the nutrients from everything around them. It, what is so remarkable about weeds is that they're the first to grow, they're the first to be green, and then the last thing to die. You ever been in a barren wasteland? What is still growing in green? Weeds. And this particular weed, this particular thorn... It's the same word used to describe the thorns used to make a wreath or a crown that was shoved onto the Lord's head at his crucifixion. The, the, these are not these little prickly things that you might see out in that freshly mowed lawn. These are gnarly, nasty, thick thorns. And as they grow, they they absolutely smother and choke the, 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 the good plants. They choke them. They, they don't even provide a way for the wheat to grow up. They are completely choked out, resulting in no crop. That's the third soil. And then we get the fourth soil. This is the good soil. This is the soil that has been tilled. This is the soil that has been prepared. This is soil that is ready for planting and seeding. It doesn't contain rocks. It doesn't contain weeds. It has no threat or hindrance to the reception and, or the germination of the good seed. It is soft and moist and rich and warm like a brownie. It is good soil. And with, with this seed, when the seed is brought into this soil, it produces a crop. And that's, that's what the farmer wants. That's why the farmer gets up early in the morning and works till late. 
That's why he's putting in those overtime hours. He has a desire and a goal, and that's to produce a crop. And look at look at his uh, look at what his crop is. Jesus' parables, Jesus' teaching, usually had uh, a wow, a wow statement. Uh, some, usually at the end, something that was stunning or amazing. And look, look at what he says in verse at the end of <coughs> verse eight. It yielded a crop. It produced 30, 60, and 100-fold. Now, the, the, the average expectancy, the average expected yield that you could expect from, from sowing and, and casting your seed would be somewhere between 6 to, if it's a really good harvest, 10-fold. Uh, so for every seed that's planted where it needs to be, you're going to get somewhere between six to ten uh, pieces of grain on that stalk that's grown from that one seed. Six to ten times back what you put in. But what's, what, is the, what is the yield here? What is the crop here? It is 30 times. It is 60 times. It is even in some places 100 times. This is miraculous. This is unimaginable so just to summarize the parable to recap you have a sower that goes out he sows the same seed sows the same seed everywhere what's different in the story the soils there are four soils with only one producing the desired outcome and where it does produce the outcome, it's a fantastic outcome. So that's the parable. And the conclusion of the parable, the, 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 the wowness of the parable, leads us to Jesus giving the reason for the parable. Verse 9. Just as he was telling them this parable, just as he was teaching them this tr- <coughs> truth, he was also saying Along with it, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. This was a repeated action. Just as he's teaching it, whenever he teaches it, he also has this concluding plea, this exhortation. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And what this does is, we can see that he's not just talking about hearing, right? He's talking about heeding understanding, grasping, responding, doing something with the truth provided in the teaching. Sometimes we, we can have one thing, have something go in one ear, go right at the other. It makes no difference. Jesus is saying, hear, heed, listen. And the fact that he gives this exhortation tells us two things. It tells us something about this group of people. There's two groups within this crowd. Those who can hear, those who can heed, grasp, respond, and those who do not, those who cannot. So then he then gives the explanation of the parable. And he he tells them, he teaches his disciples that his parables kill two birds with one stone. On one hand, to those who believe, to those who can hear, to those who perceive and understand and grasp, the parables reveal divine truth. They reveal, they convey, they teach divine truth. To those who do not believe, to those who cannot hear, to those who are outside, they rather conceal that same divine truth. So the same parable, the same message does one thing to this group, another thing to that group. And he explains, verse 10, as soon as he was alone, his followers along with the twelve, so the the crowd has moved on, his followers along with the twelve, much smaller group of disciples than before, began asking him about the parables. And he was saying to them, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. Now, of those two groups, 
which one are his disciples? Those who can hear or those who can't? Those who can. To, to those who are on the inside, it is given to you to know. It is given to you who are on the inside, to you who are my true family, to you who are united to me by faith, to those who receive my gospel and believe my gospel. It is given to you to know the mystery of the kingdom. And you're going to know the mystery of the kingdom. You're going to learn about the kingdom of God and of heaven through these parables. You will know the mystery. That What's a mystery? It, it, the way we use the word today, it, it, it's like a puzzle. It's We're given just enough. We're given some clues. We're given a, a part of the picture. And if we're smart enough, if we're, if we're crafty enough, if we're wise enough, we can kind of figure it out what the whole picture is. But the... In, in, in biblically, a mystery was it wasn't a puzzle that you could figure out if you were smart enough. A mystery was rather something, it was a truth. It was a body of knowledge. It was an understanding that was completely concealed. It was something that men could not learn or discover on their own. Could not. doesn't matter how wise or how smart they are, how privileged they are. They could not discover a mystery on their own. It was utterly concealed, and it needed to be revealed. And in, this, in these parables, they are the truths concerning the kingdom of God, which the disciples will learn. They're the truths concerning the kingdom of God. They're going to learn about the nature of the kingdom. They're going to learn about... Uh, really, in, in this parable, who inhabits the kingdom and why is it that they inhabit the kingdom? Why is it that others do not? They're going to learn about the coming of the kingdom and, and how the kingdom grows. These are the truths revealed to Jesus' disciples in the parable. They, the parables reveal divine truth to those who believe. But they also conceal just as the parables reveal to some, they conceal to others, and here they conceal to unbelievers. And Jesus quotes from Isaiah 6 to show that this is a judgment against unbelievers. This is a judgment against un- the unbelief of the Jews. We, we have seen this very clearly from the scribes, you remember? They, the scribes and the Pharisees, these are those who very outwardly, they reject Christ. But as time goes on, the people who were following Jesus for the hype, for the amazement, for the wonder of seeing his miracles, they are now beginning, their, their, their faith is now beginning to wane. They are beginning to fall away. They're beginning to fall away. Jesus concludes in verse 11, to those, it's been given to you to know, but to those who are outside, they get everything in parables so that seeing they may see and not perceive, and while hearing they may hear and not understand. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. What a verse. What a verse. The scribes and Pharisees, they had heard the declaration of John the Baptist. This Jesus, he is the Christ. They had heard Jesus' own proclamation that he was the Christ. They had the scriptures which testified to Jesus that he is the Christ. They had seen his miracles firsthand, which demonstrated he is the Christ. He is from God, but yet they rejected him. And now the people are losing their license to remain neutral. They are losing the license to remain undecided about Jesus. They are are being forced to make a decision. They, they They are being pushed to make a choice to choose between being a disciple of Jesus and affirming that he is the Christ 
or obeying the the scribes and the Pharisees and not confessing that he is in the that he is the Christ. He, they are being forced. They are being put into a position where they have to respond. They can't remain neutral and just go along with the flow any longer. They have to respond, and the people are beginning to respond in unbelief. The fear of man, as one said it, the fear of man and the cost of discipleship is proving to be too much. And for many, it's time to bail. And so Jesus' response to them, as we, as seen in, in his quotation of, Is, of Isaiah 6, is to remove, in a, as a means of judgment, is to remove what light they have left while he's in their presence. He removes what light they, have, they had left in his presence. And the people have to face the consequences. What this means... Beloved, is that there is a time, there is a day when the door to hear the gospel will close if you persist in putting it off long enough. In Isaiah's day, the consequence for their rebelliousness and their unbelief was the Babylonian captivity. That only lasted about 70 years for, for those that survived. You know what the consequences were for for uh, the Jews' rejection of Christ in Christ's day? What happened in 70 AD? Rome came in. And it, we, we could call this, uh, elsewhere the scripture calls this the time of the Gentiles. You know, the, the focus has, for the time being in the church age has been taken off of Israel. This, it's called the time of the Gentiles. We could call this, you know, like the Babylonian exile, we could call this the Gentilic exile if you want. It, that was a judgment upon the Jews for their unbelief, but more so, their judgment for them was Jesus had come proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand. If you believe in me, the kingdom will come. They, were, they didn't believe in him, so the kingdom is put on hold. The, key, the, 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 the gospel and the coming of the kingdom and the, and the messianic throne being realized, that is all put on hold. And the gospel is taken away from them. It is taken away from those to whom that were privileged to get it first and is instead going to those who will bear fruit. It's not the Jews. Who is it? The Gentiles. Which is who? Us. Time doesn't permit me to go further on this. If this is something you'd like to learn more about, I suggest Romans 9 through 11 to see how God used the unbelief of the Jews and, and how the gospel goes to the Gentiles and how he'll bring the Jews back in. Romans 9 through 11 for your own reading. But we've seen the giving of the parable and we have seen the reason for the parable. To some, parables reveal. To others, it conceals. And now, the meaning of the parable. Verses 13 to 20. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How will you un not understand? How will you then understand all the parables? Th th this, was a, this was an important one they get. If they don't get this, they're not going to have any hope of understanding the rest. It's a foundational parable to understand why people are either granted in or kept out of the kingdom. He says in verse 14, the sower sows the word. The sower sows the word. So the, the, the seed then in the parable, the seed is the word. This is the gospel. This is the message of salvation. Turn from your sins, repent, and believe in Jesus Christ. That is the seed that is sown. That is the message that is cast. That is what, what that was... Uh, that constituted Jesus' primary concern. This is what he has been sowing in his ministry up until now. And this is the same seed, this is the same message that his disciples will go on to sow in years to come. Now notice, what are we told about the sower? 
Jesus says a sower goes out to sow. What are we told about the sower? Beyond the content of what he's doing. What are we told about him? Floor's open. Are we told anything about his pedigree? Are we told anything about his upbringing? Do we know anything about his training or his education? Did he go to Sower's Sower's Seminary? Are we told anything about, you know, does he have charm? Does he have charisma? Is he a good-looking fella? Who does he know? What what are his associates? What, What are his credentials? What's his style? Does he have a designer, you know, one of those new trendy designer sewing satchels? We're not told anything about the sower. We're told nothing. All the things that if you go to a Christian bookstore and you read, you you find magazines or books that will tell you how to be an effective evangelist, how to be an effective pastor, how to be an effective Christian, how to win your friends and family over to Christ. All these things that we are told in Christianity at large that you need to know if you want to be successful, Jesus completely omits. The focus then is not on the sower, it is on the seed. That is where the power is. The importance is on the seed and the soil. So Jesus now interprets the four soils. The first is the roadside soil. Verse 15. These are the ones who are beside the road when the word is sown, and when they hear immediately... Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in him. Now, who are, who are these in the gospel narrative so far? Up until now, these would definitely be the scribes and the Pharisees. <laughs> these are those who are so hard of heart that the gospel has absolutely zero chance to embed itself in them. It is not going anywhere in their hearts, in their minds. They don't give the gospel a moment's notice. These are folks who today, these are folks who they they are so steeped in their philosophy, perhaps another religion, perhaps in their worldview or the way they see themselves. These are folks, the roadside soil are people who they have already decided beforehand what they're going to believe. And it doesn't matter what you do, what you say. They've made up their mind. Hard-hearted, stiff-necked people who won't consider the truth of the Bible. Like Romans 1, these are folks who, they have suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. Deep down inside, they know. But they, they are so willful in their unbelief that they suppress it, and then they believe the lie. And they've made up their mind what they want to believe. That's roadside people. Then in verses 16 to 17, we get the stony ground. These are those who, when they hear the word, immediately they receive it with joy. But what's the problem? They have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. And when when the sun of affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. How many times does immediately show up in this text? A lot. They immediately fall away. Just as the rocky ground teased the farmer with a quick superficial growth, these are converts. These are disciples who they appear to be genuine converts. They, they appear, they, you might perceive them to be genuine Christians, genuine disciples of Jesus. And this would, this would be easily justifiable in, 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 in the gospel. When, imagine you, you, your child was healed by Jesus. If you had leprosy, if, if you had been unable to walk, if your child was a mute or a loved one was possessed by a demon and you saw what Jesus did, who wouldn't want to follow along and learn from Jesus? Who wouldn't want to learn from him and and hear what else he has to say and see what else he can do. These are people who respond 
to Jesus and the gospel with joy. They respond with emotion. And they could be motivated to convert for, for family, for social acceptance, for love. Or, as I said earlier, because of the hype. All of these things could elicit an emotional response to Jesus. But that's the nature. That's the, or that's, the, that's the substance of their conversion. It's emotion. The substance of these people's conversion is emotion. It is not because of a transformation of the heart. It's not because of a transformation of a mind. These folks do not have a heart for discipleship at the feet of Jesus Christ. And just as the plants in the shallow soil, these are temporary, these folks are temporary Christians. It's kind of an oxymoron, isn't it? But these folks are temporary Christians. They, their faith has an expiration date. They are not built to last. They have no root. They have no means of endurance. So when the sun of affliction, when the sun and the heat of persecution comes and begins taxing what little reserves they have, whatever moisture they they have is quickly expended. And they die and fall away. Plants need to have deep roots that can tap into that moisture that it needs during the hard times. And isn't that what we were looking at through most of First Peter? Where Remember, Peter encourages and exhorts us to remember our salvation and our trials, to, to remember God's goodness in our trials. Christians dig down and dig deep into the person and the work of Jesus Christ when the heat is on. And if you don't have that to tap into, whatever you do have is not going to be suffice. So then the third that he explains is the thorny soil, verse 18 and 19. These are the ones who, when they hear the word, they... These are the others are the ones on whom the seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things, they enter in and they choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Now, like the rocky soil, this one is 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 a. Deceitful. It, it, it looks promising at first. You, you see green. You see growth. That's you, you'd be inclined to think that's good, right? But it's deceiving because not everything that gr- is green and not everything that grows is good. These are weeds. These are brambles. These are nasty thorns. And the and the fact that they are in the soil alongside the seed of the gospel tells us that these are people who have divided hearts. These are folks who have divided hearts. They want God and they want the world at the same time. They want Jesus and they want their stuff. They want their pleasures. They want their safety. They want their comforts. They want both at the same time. There are three things that Jesus tells us competes with him Three things that competes with his gospel in the hearts. One is the worries or the anxieties of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and and then uh, as a catch-all for anything that the first two don't uh, qualify as uh, are the desires of other things. He says that the, the worries of the world, the anxieties of the world, what are these? What What are the things, let me ask you, what are the things that keep you up at night? I can remember back to my youth, and there was always something that I was craving. There was always something that I, I, need, I, I felt this lack that I needed, and it was, whether it was a motorcycle, it was usually a girlfriend, but whether it was, an, whether it was a, a better job, better paying job, uh, a, a newer car that had less problems, um, um, 
you know, fixing up my, my, my house, get, you know, getting uh, the, the newer iPhone, whatever. There was always something that, that I am being emotionally driven towards. That if I, I, I need that thing because I, I don't feel complete. I don't feel like I am where I need to be. I need that thing. I want that thing. I want to be doing that thing, whatever. There was always something. Money, possessions, vehicles, jobs, games, phones, girls, reputation, your glory, your position, even health, even having a well-chiseled body could be something that is a worry of the age. I mean, think, how many, mag- how many magazines do you see in the, in the newsstand with bodies that you or I will never possess, no matter how hard we try, but it, they're, they're, they're held out. You, know, you could be like this if you tried hard enough. Just cut out gluten and you'll get these six, this six-pack. The, the, the worries, the anxieties, the cravings of the world. <clears throat> then there's the deceitfulness of riches. And who, who has never felt that, that lull, that, that pull, that if you just had a little more money, all your problems would be dealt with? All your problems would be dealt with. And then for, for anything that the first two don't, don't qualify as, you have the desires of other things. So let me ask you, between God and between stuff, what will it be? Is Jesus sufficient for you? If you had to choose between Jesus and better health, security, Prosperity, what will it be? I think at the heart of all these things, these are, these, because they are competing in the heart, these are idolatries, things that compete with God in the heart. And then Jesus explains the fourth soil. This is the good soil, verse 20. Those are the ones on whom seed was sown on the good soil. They hear the word. And they accept it, and they bear fruit 30, 60, and 100-fold. These are those whose hearts have been prepared by God to receive the seed of the gospel. Their hardness has been tilled. Their their hearts have been plowed. Their hearts have been furrowed. The Holy Spirit has cultivated them by convicting them of sin and convicting them in their mind they lack God's righteousness before when they should they stand before a holy God they are in trouble and so a supernatural work has been done to them an an alien an outside an external force has been done to them which is obvious because Using the analogy of the field, what field tills itself? Nobody goes out and and sows seed in a field without working in it first. Needs a farmer to come in to do the hard work, pull those rocks out, pull those weeds out, and not not just lop it off at the top, because what happens when you cut weeds off at the top? They come back with a vengeance. You've got to dig down deep, and you've got to pull that root out. You've got to get your hands dirty. And pulling those weeds of idolatry out at the root. You've got to dig deep. You've got to till. And then you can sow the seed. And so those who are good soil, those of you here who are good soil, are here because God has made that so in you. God has done the work in you. Philippians 1.29 says that it has even been given to you. It has been given as a gracious gift to you to believe in Christ. And so what's the effect of God's work? They hear the word. They have, going back to Isaiah's uh, uh, allusion, um, he, they hear the word. They have ears to hear. They, they heed. They believe. They receive. They have faith. They accept it. This is not just a, a mere mental uh, ascension, but they they take it in, they receive it, they run with it, and then they do what with it? They bear what? 
they bear fruit. Now, what's the fruit? There's fruit in you. There's fruit through you. We, we have the fruit of the Spirit, faith, love, joy, peace, patience, long-suffering, kindness, gentleness, goodness, self-control. But there's also, there's also the fruit through you. As we evangelize and as we sow the seed to others. And this is particularly why I think his disciples needed to understand this parable. This is why they needed to hear the parable. This is why they needed to understand the parable. Because people were falling away all around them. Faces that they had seen and heard. Perhaps friends that they had made over the last several months. I mean, this this was a could have been a, about a year into Jesus's ministry. People that they've made, friends that they've made are leaving and falling away. And so the question is, is, did we do something wrong? Did Jesus do something wrong? Has he failed in some way? I mean, look, even, even, the, the, even the, the recognized religious leaders are saying these horrible things about them. I mean, they couldn't be completely wrong, could they? Do we have the wrong guy? People are falling away. And this parable tells them they're not falling away because of any fault of Jesus. They're not falling away because of any fault of the disciples. They're not falling away because of any fault or inadequacy of the gospel. They are falling away because they don't have the heart for it. They don't have the heart for the gospel, they don't have the heart for the kingdom of God. And today, what I want to impress upon you is that people don't reject the gospel or Jesus because you haven't made Jesus look good enough. Your loved ones that you share the gospel with, your loved ones that you evangelize, your family that knows you're a Christian and you try to evangelize to them, they don't turn away from Jesus. They don't reject Jesus because you have failed to make Jesus look good enough or because you haven't given the right gimmick or you haven't dressed it up enough or you haven't, you haven't shown them enough empathy. So don't let the rejection of the gospel discourage you from sharing it. Rather, be encouraged because God has promised to do the hard work of tilling hearts and plowing and furrowing hearts to receive his gospel. And he has said, you remember what the Great Commission said? Every tongue, every tribe, every nation. Beloved, wherever you go, there will be some. Granted, many will reject. Many will reject, but wherever you go and wherever the gospel is shared, there will be some that God has called. There will be some who have plowed hearts to receive and there will be some who receive and bear fruit. And when it does happen, the, 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 the yielding, the crop, the results will be fan-diddly-tastic. And that is encouraging to me. It is not responsible on for me. It is not my responsibility for what people do. My responsibility is to sow. Your responsibility is to sow. God does the heavy lifting. And that's encouraging to me. And I hope it's encouraging to you too. Pray. Lord, you have you have commissioned your church to go out and to, pr- to proclaim your gospel and to make disciples of all the nations, and you've said to go everywhere. You've said not to leave anybody out. What a joy it is to know that we work in an enterprise that will not fail, not because of our skill, not because of our acumen, not because of what we bring, but because of what you have said even the gates of Hades will not prevail against your church. Thank you, Lord, for doing the hard work, for tilling hard hearts. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for making us receptive to the seed of the gospel and giving us faith to believe. 
Lord, and give us give us a greater zeal to share this gospel <coughs> with others. Give us opportunities, even this week, even this day, to share the gospel with our friends, with our neighbors, with our family. Help us to be bold and to have faith knowing that you are the one who does the hard work. We have the easy work. You have provided the seed of the word. You have provided the power of your Holy Spirit. You ready the soil of the soul. You work in hearts of those whom you have called. Help us to be faithful in doing our task. Help us to be faithful in sowing the word. Amen.